Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> 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 Since when? All right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, okay, let's go ahead and get rolling tonight. Josh, where are you? You're there. Hayden is right there. I would say over the past year, and you both will know this more than anyone else in the room, I have come to appreciate good story more than I have throughout the rest of my life. Um, and so what I want to start with tonight um, is, is to ask the question, why, and I know some of you are very like novel, fiction inclined, why is it that storytelling can be such a powerful medium for conveying various truths and ideas that authors want to convey? Uh, why is it that Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, do such a good job conveying various Christian truth. Why is it that that medium works so well? What are your thoughts on that? Can I plagiarize C.S. Lewis for a bit? I figured somebody would. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, um, I think I read it in one of his books called God in the Docks, but basically there's this idea that <coughs> stories, but myths in particular, uh, give you this opportunity to look at truth from two different perspectives. So there's this scientific, rational perspective you can look at things, uh, you can look at people falling in love as like, oh, that's just a chemical reaction in their brain. Or you can look at it from the other kind of more uh, first-person experiential mm -hmm. perspective where it's like, no, this is something that just radically changes my life. Um, and generally, you're only able to do one at a time. But what stories do is they allow you to look at it from both perspectives at the same time. Uh, and oftentimes without even realizing that you're doing it, so it just kind of seeps in past your guard, you're not trying to tear it apart and analyze it. Sure. I can broaden the question, why is it then that you guys just enjoy like fiction and good storytelling so much? That might be a more appropriate place to start. If it's done well, you can experience things that you wouldn't normally experience and you can learn more about yourself through it. Okay. Any, anyone else? I don't want to, I know we have some big, yeah. I mean, story is connected to art and art is basically telling the truth beautifully. And so, if you want to learn something, you can, somebody can just say, don't be stupid, right? Don't betray your friends, whatever it is. Or you can intake that through reading a book and you get that beauty and that empathy. Kind of like when somebody listens to you while you're talking, you want to see that they're understanding you. And when you see a story where the character's struggling with the same thing you're struggling with, it's like this form of empathy. And there's beauty in that too. Yes. Um, and, and the reason I start with that is Romans chapter 4 in a very, very simplified sense. If Romans 3 was like the theologic, doctrinal, like statement, 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 Romans 4 is the whole thing over again, but through a story. And it's through Abraham's story. And there's some very important reasons why that is. But it's, it's almost more engaging in a sense because it is seeing all the truths that we have already learned through the life of one of the patriarchs, through Abraham. Um, before we do, though, you guys, should be, you guys should be ready for this by now. Give me something that you took away from last week, chapter 3. Um, you can either just give me your takeaway, whatever it was, or you, I, no one has done this yet, so I don't know why I keep asking. But, or you can take your stab at summarizing all of chapter 3. Give me something that you remember from the lesson last week. Anything you remember from the last and last week? I remember I wasn't here. Okay. How many of you were here last week? Let's start there. All right. The rest of you are obviously excused because I haven't even posted it on the podcast. Give me something that you remember about Romans 3. 
Okay. No one seeks after God. Yes, okay, what sort of things do we have happening in Romans 3? It's only the best chapter in the Bible, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to put it. I think... I'm trying to think of the first section, the second section and the third section. Mm-hmm. Um, let me look at Nah, that's cheating. <laughs> okay, what was okay. the first section? Help him out. What was the first section about in Romans chapter 3? Who was it finishing up talking about? The Jews. The Jews, yes. That, that's what I was thinking of. Is, is a, a, it's him, it was him clarifying that the, that the Jews were being were also at were also being uh, I'm bad with words. Yeah, I'm being honest. But yeah, they could be the judged were, as well. The, ju- the Jews were subject to God's judgment, the same as the Gentiles, because they, just like the Gentiles, were not following the the, the laws laws of God. Mm-hmm. They weren't following the Scripture. They were they were basically committing the same the same sins as them, but because they were under the impression that they were God's people, so to speak, they thought. They thought they were exempt from it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we have that first section, the Jews. Then we get into Donovan. I sent you the word. It's a what? What's the word I sent you in the last week? It starts with a C. Josh, you're you can think about it. <laughs> oh, I was just going to make a comment that um, you pointed out that Paul uses logic to argue his case. And then he supports it with scripture right after that to show this isn't just logical, this is also biblical. Which Donovan knows to be a karaz. That's right. That's a, <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, so we move from the Jewish claim, talking about how does this work for the Jewish people. Then we, Paul strung a bunch of Old Testament verses together to support his claim. Then we moved into the section where saying, like, Yay, Jesus, right? Like, Jesus is our everything. Where we all failed, Jesus was able to take up the slack for us. Okay, I'm going to give you my formal summary that I do every week, and then we will move into chapter 4. And follow along in chapter 3, and you can sort of see the outline of this. Continuing the thought of chapter 2, Paul shows that while the Jews do have genuine advantages by nature of their Jewishness, they were not faithful to God. God is, however, faithful nevertheless, which means that he can and must judge Jewish sin as he does Gentile sin. Paul shows that the Old Testament supports his claims regarding human depravity. From not desiring God to hurtful speech and acts against fellow humans, every individual is guilty before God and cannot work his way to God by the law. God provided a new covenant of salvation for all mankind through faith in Jesus and his substitutionary death. This death was necessary for God to be just while also redeeming mankind. Since God is the author and accomplisher, no one can celebrate human achievement, but must rather humbly come to one God through one mediator in one faith. Instead of diminishing it, faith in Christ actually allows the law to be more fulfilled than ever before. That is what we basically are taking away from chapter 3. Tonight we're going to move into chapter 4, and if you're following along in the outline posted in band, we're moving into the section by faith alone, elaboration with respect to Abraham. I think tonight's going to be a little bit easier to digest because it's going to be broken up into four really nice 
sort of bite-sized chunks as we go through. And the first of that is going to be faith and works. Faith and works. Particularly with regard to faith and works, what is it that all Christians believe? What is, what is the main takeaway that we've seen regarding faith and works up until this point in the book of Romans? Salvation comes by only faith, not because of your good works or because of your good deeds. Absolutely. Christians believe that no one is able to be work, uh, able to work their way to God. And tonight, this is like a case study. If you're into you know, published research, this is a case study of the claims that we have in, in the past chapter. And Abraham is going, Paul's going to show through Abraham that no one can be justified or shown to be in a right standing before God because of doing good stuff or going to church or doing, you know, Paul didn't really, uh, Abraham didn't really go to church since that wasn't a thing back then. But um, no one can do good works enough to get to God. It is by faith alone. And so this is really what Paul is going to be arguing here. So let's hear this idea illustrated in the life of Abraham, verses 1 through 8, chapter 4 of the glorious book of Romans. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. All right, put on your thinking caps here. Any thoughts on why Paul I mean, Paul would choose to illustrate um, his points with Abraham? Why Abraham? He could have done David. He starts to a little bit. Why Abraham? Because Abraham was the first person he made a covenant with. That's a very important point, yes. Um, and we're definitely going to be including that. Um, what do you mean by covenant? Yes, somebody. Andrew, Stephen, I don't really. So in layman's terms, a covenant is like a promise uh, or a treaty. It's where one side says, okay, I'm going to do this thing, and the other says, okay, because you're doing this, I'll do that. Uh, and what Andrew's pointing out is Abraham is one of the first cases where we see God promising if you are faithful in this way, I will reward you in this way. Right. And so he's, he's one, of that, one of the really, uh, there's debate as to whether covenants have happened before Abraham, but in terms of the Jewish people, he is the jumping off. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And so when Jews in Paul's day are going to appeal to something, who are they going to appeal to? Abraham and his, and his life and works, yes. Um, I just want to try and put this in American perspective. So we often in this country have debates about the Constitution, and a lot of times yeah. we could cite a lawyer or a constitutional scholar today who is very knowledgeable, but oftentimes we will go back and refer to the founding fathers who were the, right. uh, the ones who created and produced our whole heritage. Uh, and so that's kind of hopefully a way you can get the Abraham context. Yes, and guess what? In Paul's day, they started to really elevate Abraham up and up and up into a status that he wasn't actually 
in his own life. Um, if I were to say intertestamental literature, does anyone have an idea what that means? That's a fancy term, yeah. It's books and events that happen between the New and Old Testament. Yes. And so, in, uh, obviously, Abraham gets discussed because that is a popular topic in these books. Some of the things that refer to in Ju the book of Jubilees, Abraham was referred to as perfect. Um, and another one, it says that he did not sin against thee. If you've read the Old Testament, ah, I mean, there were a few things Abraham did that were a little suspect along the way there. There were a few, few little slip-ups that uh, Abraham committed in his life. And so what Paul is really going to try to do here is Paul is going to try to recover Abraham from that form of teaching and show that Abraham is actually according to his own cause. Yes? Who is Abraham? Yes, who is Abraham? Somebody. <laughs> so much to be said. <laughs> so Abraham uh, was the founding father of the Jewish people. Uh, he was one of the first people with whom God personally had a covenant, uh, and, and he is the one from whom we get the Jewish and the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. um, they're right, there's a lot more that could be said about it, but that's probably the most important thing to know about it. I know one thing. Yeah, sure. Just, it, it's one of my favorite things to talk about when it comes to Abraham. God made a promise to him before the covenant that he would make his descendants like the multitude of the sea, like the multitude of the sands on the seashore. Like the heavens are laden with stars, so I will make their descendants. And that was a beautiful image of like his children and like his, everyone to come after him. And there's so much more to go into that, but yeah, that's the next one. And we will. So basically he is the <laughs> <laughs> he is the first person, um, the father actually, of the Jewish nation. And so what Paul has to do here then is say, Okay, not only was Abraham not perfect he has to show that Abraham didn't keep the law perfectly. He has to show that, which may sound weird, but some, some in Paul's day had started to say, even though the law hadn't been given through Moses, Abraham kept it perfectly. He was already perfectly in accord with this. And so what Paul has to go and show here is that Abraham wasn't able to get to God because he was perfect. He was able to have a relationship with God because of faith. Um, secondarily, this is very important because Abraham is connected with what Andrew said is the covenant. This is a very big theme in scripture is that there's a covenant, an agreement that God has made with Abraham. And one of the things that it says is that, you know, Danny, you quoted this, your descendants will be as the stars of the heavens. You're going to have a lot of children. And what Paul is going to argue for here is that it's not just physical descendants that are children of Abraham. It is all who have the same faith as Abraham. So if, since none of us are Jewish in this room, if any of us want to look to Abraham as a father, he has to be the father of our faith, right? The founding father of faith. Not the founding father of, I kept the law and I did a really good job before God, because we can't relate to that as Gentiles, we, as non-Jewish people. We were never under the Mosaic law. But if Paul can show that Abraham came to God by faith, then he can actually say, doesn't matter what nationality you are, if you have faith, then Abraham is, spiritually speaking, a father to you. 
So you can almost sort of view verses 1 through 8 as a commentary on um, the last few verses of Romans chapter 3. So let's see how Paul illustrates this point. He returns back to this very same thing, this theme that we talked about last week. If someone can work their way to God, if someone can do enough good stuff to merit their way to God, then they can what? What can they do? What is something you can do if you earn something? Boast, right? And that's where Paul finishes chapter 3. And what does he say here? Um, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. Yes? Can you give an example of boasting? Would you like to give an example of boasting? <laughs> <laughs> See what you did? <laughs> um, okay, so boasting would be like, um, you know, say that I had a big accomplishment or I did better than somebody else at something or I got a better grade than somebody and I'm kind of, another word is like bragging. Um, so you know, I kind of go and I'm full of myself or, you know, I say, well, I got this score and you didn't and look at how good I did. And you're sort of, you know, elevating yourself or making yourself look good in a, in a bad way. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what Paul's saying is Abraham can't boast before God. Then he's going to back that claim up. What does he say? Abraham, he quotes from Genesis uh, 17, I think. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the fact of the matter is, is that Abraham, like everyone else, believed. That was the fundamental jumping off point for his relationship with God, is belief. And so that word right there, when it says counted, it's, an, it's if you're, any of you are interested in business, this is obviously an accounting terminology where he says, basically he's, he's um, let's see, I, basically means that God gave something to Abraham which did not inherently belong to Abraham. In the moment that Abraham had faith in God, it's as if God changed his status from that of sinner to righteous. Did Abraham change in his conduct? Not exactly, but he placed his faith and God recognized that as something that was righteous. So Paul gives another example right after this that's going to make perfect sense to us if you've ever had a job. And this is why I say this text is a little bit more digestible because it's some very understandable concepts. How many of you work a job in here of some sort? Okay, all right, when you get your paycheck, do you, uh, if you actually even see your boss, but like <laughs> you may say thank you, I appreciate it, something like that to, to your supervisor. Is there anything to be thankful for really to that person? Not exactly, why? You earned it. They didn't give it to you because they were having a nice day or felt really nice about you and just wanted to wish you Merry Christmas, they, they gave it to you because they were in a debt to who? You. Why? You did something for them, and they are obligated to what? Do something in return. So they're um, indebted to you. You have something to boast about, if you want to take that sort of phrase. You can say, hey, I worked 40 hours for you. Give me my money. And so they have to do something for you because you did something for them. And scripture teaches that we never place God in a debt to us. God's salvation is always a gift to us because he loves us and because he wants a relationship with us. Our way to God then, Paul is going to argue, cannot be by works and is instead by faith. Because if it were by works, then God would be indebted to give it to us. 
So when God sees genuine faith in him, then he grants to us righteousness that we can never attain by just trying to become a better and better and better and better person. Um, no other passage in the New Testament more clearly says this than Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may from there then, Paul appeals to David, which is another major figure in Jewish culture. And Paul selects these texts more than likely because they contain a parallel word. If you look through verses 7 and 8, what, what word is the same as what Paul has just used? And I've just talked about too. Yeah, that, that's cool too. In Romans or Ephesians? In Romans, sorry. Just in like the verse or two before. It might be the same, but... Um, Go back to um, go back to verse four. What's the same word as is there compared to verses six, uh, seven and eight? Oh, gift. Not the one I'm looking for. <laughs> Counted. Yes. One rabbinic tradition is to say, "I have a word. Go find that word in the Old Testament to support what I'm claiming." It's a very similar thing to exactly what I do. And so what Paul does here is he he quotes David. And when he quotes David, notice that it isn't God counting people's good works to them, which causes him to forgive sins. When, when David talks about how good it is to be forgiven by God, it isn't that he did a bunch of good stuff and God in turn forgave him. What David says here is he just grants righteousness to us. It is his not counting of sins, which constitutes forgiveness. It's not working it is his not counting something that means forgiveness. Can you explain who David is? Yes. And actually, I'll, I'll open that up to the floor again. What was the word? David. 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 Who's David? David is descendant from Abraham, a very direct line. Um, he was known as one of the greatest kings of Israel, also chosen by God, just like Abraham was. And that was covenant with him as well. Absolutely. Specifically, he was the king so that ends our first section right this is this is Paul attempting to show that faith and works are not really compatible when it comes to getting to God and he illustrates this through Abraham we're going to move into the second section faith and circumcision uh, verses 9 through 12 is this blessing only for is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then has it counted, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So what is the point of circumcision? I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> is that well, <laughs> verse 12? Oh, you have verse 12. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And to make him yeah. father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walked in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul has talked about circumcision here, which is a whole topic in of itself in the Old Testament. 
But what is the point of circumcision? Paul has argued that it is this external sign of that covenant that people have been talking about with Abraham. The point of it is, it's like, it's very similar to baptism, which we'll get to in a moment, but it's an external sign or symbol of an inward reality. It's an external sign or symbol of an inward reality. And since this is for Abraham and for Jewish people in that way of, in that, you know, in the rabbi's way of thinking, Paul asks a very, like, obvious question that's going to follow from that, and that is, what is the relationship, um, if, if this is how you're getting to God, how is this blessing of forgiveness and a relationship with God, is it going to be received by Gentiles or is it just for Jews? Is it just for the Jews to have all the stuff that God promised to the Jews? Or is this something that can be accessible for anyone in the world? Doesn't matter if you're American or Brazilian or, you know, I don't know, China. Like, it literally doesn't matter. Any, yeah. Tanzan, I don't care if you're Tanzanian. Is, are the promises for you? That's the question that Paul wants to answer is, are these promises that God's been making all along just for the Jewish people or can they be open to any nationality? And so this is what Paul wants to answer. So Paul returns to the point that he made just a moment ago. You'll see that he basically restates that same premise when he says, um, how was it counted to him? Actually, sorry, uh, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham um, as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Okay, cool. We have righteousness happening in Paul's life and we have faith happening. How is it happening? And what Paul is going to say here is that Abraham had faith prior to being circumcised. He wasn't made righteous when he had the external reality. He was made righteous long before that. Uh, it is in Genesis 15 where it's quoted that he says, and Abraham believed and it was counted for righteousness. That's where that comes from. And when does Abraham get circumcised in the book of Genesis? Not until Genesis chapter 17, which uh, rabbis would say there was about a 29-year gap between these two events. Um, some of you have made no may have noticed that in band I posted that, that ridiculous meme. And... This is, this is where I was in my process of writing this lesson where I went and found that meme and made the meme because I was like, that is absolutely hilarious. Like, I mean, imagine, that's a brilliant way of arguing for it. I was like, what a great roast though. I mean, if you've ever seen the gif of the super hot fire meme, I was like, Paul just absolutely roasted these guys because he said he was righteous far before he was ever circumcised. And that is like a most brilliant logical argument because then what are you supposed to say? Genesis 15 was wrong? I mean, how are you supposed to deal with that? He was accounted to righteousness right there when he believed. It didn't require circumcision. So then the question would be, what in the world does circumcision matter at all? If you have salvation and you're part of the promise and blah, 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 without circumcision, then who cares about circumcision at all? If you already have, if you're good to go by faith, then what do you need circumcision for? So when we speak of circumcision, it is a seal, an outward symbol that confirms an inward reality. Circumcision has nothing inherent in it or is special or savingly powerful about it. Being circumcised cannot protect you from the final judgment, which is sort of a common thought that was happening in Paul's day. 
It is always just designed as a symbol of something that is going on within your heart, belief, faith in God. And so this is very, very, very similar to how Christians are to understand baptism. Obviously, there are similarities and differences, which I talked about in Romans chapter three as well. But baptism doesn't mean diddly squat if, that's a very technical term, by the way. Uh, It doesn't mean diddly squat if you don't have the inward reality, okay? If you have been saved by faith, should you be baptized? Yes, because that is the symbol, that is the token that you get to hold on to in a very special way, right? You proclaim something through that, but there's no saving power in getting wet. There's no, I mean, like you're just getting thrown in a river. There's nothing (laughs) saving from eternal judgment about getting baptized. I mean, you're just getting dunked underwater. What really saves somebody is the faith. And that is exactly the same thing that we see here, an external sign of an inward reality. So what was the purpose of this in Abraham's life more broadly at all? Why why did God set it up this way that Abraham would have faith prior to being circumcised? That, it is because that way righteousness could be counted to Gentiles too and Abraham could be seen as the father of both the circumcision, the Jewish people, and the uncircumcision. Think about it like this. There's this time period in Paul's life where Paul, or sorry, Abraham's life where he is in a relationship with God but he is uncircumcised like a Gentile would be, like in Paul's culture, like any Greek would be. Then Paul goes on to have faith while also being circumcised. There's a significant portion of his life where he's having faith being circumcised and uncircumcised. What this means then is that we, as people who are Gentiles, can relate to Paul by just having faith. We can have Abraham as a spiritual father because he had faith and wasn't circumcised for a while. Then you also have the Jewish people who historically have been those that, with the law, have been circumcised. And, Paul, and Abraham lived that life as well. And so what Paul basically says here is that Abraham can be father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised who have faith, right? Because the fundamental point is that anyone who has faith can look to Abraham as a spiritual father. We can relate to Abraham in that way. If you're circumcised, cool, that's awesome. You have the Old Testament sign of an external reality. If you're not circumcised, that's okay too, because Abraham can also be your spiritual father. Yes? Was there some sort of, like, like circumcision was for men. So yep. what about women? Like, was there some sort of anything for women? No, which is... Um, not Judaism. No, um, yes. And for the record, there is a form of female circumcision. It's not great. Um, but circumcision actually predates Judaism by a lot. It does. Um, and it was widely practiced in a lot of the pagan cultures before Abraham showed up. No, there isn't. And this is, this is why, if I may get off in a little bit of a weed, weeds here, this is why yeah. I see a big shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament in that there is now an individualistic focus, right? In the Old Testament, it was just the men who are the corporate identifier. They're like the head of the household and what they do applies to their family. 
In the New Testament, though, and obviously that is, I understand that you still need individual faith, but in the New Testament, it is very much every individual experiences baptism. And so it doesn't matter nationality, gender, there is inequality in Christ and an individualistic element that is not noted in the more corporate communal element of the Old Testament. You got me all, all messed up now. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. So basically the point I want to walk away with, though, in that section is whether you're circumcised Jewish, whether you're not circumcised, Gentile, Abraham can be your spiritual father because Abraham is the father of everyone who has faith. So, recapping so far. Salvation doesn't come by works of the law. It comes by faith. Salvation doesn't come because you were circumcised and you were a Jew and you had everything going for you because of a certain nationality. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. You have to have what? Faith. And so we're going to move into our third section here, um, which is faith, uh, promise, and law, verses 13 through 22. And this is the place where I really, really want to get off in the weeds. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherent of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and promise is void. For the law brings wrath, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith with Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the death, um, to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he promised uh, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No belief unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So, again, this is a place where I really, really want to get off topic and, and dive into some things. And I will say that this is probably going to be the most advanced part of tonight, conceptually speaking. And so I, this is probably going to be some new territory for a lot of you in here. And if you have questions about it, totally fine. It is not something that I got on my first pass through. Um, and so if you have questions about it, want me to slow down and go through it later, I'm happy to do that. Let it, let it be simple. For, we're going to try to keep it simple for you. Let it be simple for you because it can be. It is, it is not that crazy hard on a simple level. You can drown an elephant in the depth of this, but it can be simple on a surface level. That covenant that we're talking about, that promise that God made to Abraham, what is one of the major parts of it? You have, you have obviously talked about the descendant part. What is one of the major, there's three parts, but what's one of the major parts of that covenant? One word, one word. No. What's one of the benefits for, in that Abrahamic covenant? Children. That's, that's one Danny mentioned. Blessing. That's the other one for the nations, third one. Land. land. Yes. Okay. So Abraham was promised land by God. Okay. Let's stop right there. 
Abraham was promised land by God. That's so simple. Look at that. That's so nice. Um, but here's, here's, where, here's where I want to take you, and this is what Paul's going to be going into here. Um, look at this. In the Old Testament, what was Abraham promised? He was promised the Canaan land, the promised land, the land of Israel, right? That's the small, tiny little sliver of land in the Middle East that Abraham was promised. But Paul doesn't say promised a tiny little sliver of land in the Middle East here. What does he say? The world. The world, which, by the way, is a very mind-blowing trip. If you want to go down that rabbit hole with me sometime, I cannot tell you how much I would enjoy going down that rabbit hole with you. Um, or you can just wait for an explanation in chapter 3 of my book, A God and Me. But just got to plug that in there. But this, this promise of inheritance did not come through obedience or adherence to the law, but faith. Why could the promise of land not come through law-keeping? Why? Very simple. If the promise is given to those who keep the Mosaic law, then what? Faith is pointless. Faith is pointless. Because the people who are getting it are the ones keeping the law. But if the ones who are keeping the law are the ones who are getting the promise, guess what's also pointless? The promise itself. Why? What's the first three chapters tell you? None can keep the law. None can keep the law. And if it's by works of the law, then guess who's getting the promise? Nobody. Nobody. So God's promise, what? Is void. Is void. Oops, that's not a good conclusion. And no Jew in Paul day is going to like that conclusion. And so what Paul moves from here is, is to say that he reiterates the same point again. All the law can do is condemn you. All the law can do is tell you you're wrong. Here's a rule. You didn't meet it. Boom, you're done. It can't do anything savingly. Um, while all sin is wrong, you may notice that uh, Paul moves into a different statement um, in verse uh, 15. He says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And transgression and sin for Paul are not synonyms. Odd thought. There can, there can be sin without transgression. Ah, I won't even do it. That'll just mess you up. Transgression means that there is a law and I broke it. Right? Like, let's say you... Let's say you were on a road somewhere. I like speeding. That's a good example. So let's say that there was no speed limit. Okay? And I was still going 40. No. Um, let's say there was no speed limit somewhere. Could you, theoretically, I know this can break down. Could you sin by being reckless or inconsiderate by your driving behaviors? Yes. But you, could you have transgressed the law if there is no law? No, you have to have a rule book in order to break a rule book. And so what Paul is saying here is that the law condemns, and then he goes on to say that, yes, sin exists out in the world for Gentiles who didn't grow up with the law. But if you're a Jew, as a matter of fact, you don't just sin, you transgress. You had the rule book, and you did it even worse. You literally were told what to do, and you didn't do it. So all the law can do is condemn. All it does is stand there and make you feel bad about yourself. Um, so there are numerous instances of him saying uh, that sinning, this sin, would mean that you cannot receive the promise. So instead, what is the promise of God dependent on? Here's the theme of the chapter right here. Faith. The, the promise is based on faith. Why? Faith is a gift of God. It is God's graciousness to give us faith. 
Thus, it is guaranteed that the promise of God will succeed. In Genesis, when the covenant came time to be ratified, who walked through the embers and ratified the covenant? God and Abraham. No, just God walked through. Why? Because if it's God and Abraham, then it has to depend on the both of them. But God said, nighty night, Abraham, go to sleep. And God walked through the fires alone, it says. And what that symbolizes is that God is going to accomplish this covenant unilaterally. And if it is based on faith and faith comes from God, then God will give the faith to accomplish his covenant. And so then if you are a Jew who has tried of the law or one who has been without the law, it doesn't matter, but you have faith, then Abraham can truly be said to be your father. Um, it's right here in verse 16 and 17. Um, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham. Maybe you grew up, I'm saying if you're, if you're in this Jewish culture, maybe you grew up and you were one like Paul who tried very, very hard to do everything perfectly and you tried to meet that standard and you tried to be perfect, okay? There's that group of people. And then there's a group of people who could not care less about trying to keep the rules. Paul says that no matter which background you come from, you both have to have faith. And if you have that faith, then Abraham is father of us all, which is a very controversial statement. Even people who converted to Judaism were not allowed to refer to Abraham as their father. And so when Paul says this, this is a big deal a big deal for them to be able to refer, for Gentiles, us, to be able to refer to Abraham as father. Um, culturally speaking, that is a very important point. To continuing on in Romans then, Abraham believed God, and this is a God who, rate, this is, catch these phrases, because these will come back and forth through the rest of the passage. God raises people from the dead and creates out of nothing. So God could bring about something from nothing and nothing and life where there had only been death before. Why did it have to be belief in a God that had that sort of power? Abraham was promised, Danny, uh, you said, a great many number of children. As he, Abraham was taken outside and said, look up and see. And there, were, you know, there wasn't any electricity to occlude. Yeah. The lights. I made I made a stupid mistake. I went to Death Valley on a full moon to stargaze. Yeah, there is um, there aren't very many stars when there's a full moon in Death Valley. Um, Abraham's outside and he's looking up and there's all these stars and God tells him if you can count these, that's how many children you're gonna have. And guess how many children Abraham has at that point in time? Zero. That's rough right? That's a tough place to be. That's a really tough place to be. And so there is, I mean, there are no indications from a human perspective. There's not any hope that God's promises are going to come true. But Abraham had faith that God was going to keep his promises. Look what Abraham's body is described as. His body is described as what? Dead basically referring to his old age. I mean, not that you should ever say this to your grandparents, but they're old, you know, they're good as dead, right? I mean, they're, they're that old, right? You're, you're old as dirt, right? And that's Abraham here. He's like, man, I am old, right? I am not about to have a baby. I am an old man. And so when Paul says that Abraham believed in a God that can give life where there was death, he's basically saying Abraham, who basically looked at himself as, I'm about to die. I'm that old. 
God, God can give life to a body that is that old. Which, by the way, also a very convenient illustration for Paul to use life and death. Because he's about to start arguing that God is powerful enough to raise Jesus Christ for the dead, from the dead for our, our sins. So we have life and death paradigm with Abraham. Then we have the something from nothing paradigm in, in Sarah's womb. Sarah, his wife, is also really old. Um, Genesis 18.11. I decided to include it because this verse puts it in a very striking um, way that, that makes you realize just how miraculous it was going to have to be. Genesis 18.11. That's all right. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So when it says that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, it basically means that she was postmenopausal. Okay, she was old and out of reproductive season. Okay, both of them were, and so you have needing of life giving to Abraham and. Sarah's womb, there is nothing of reproductive quality left in her womb. God is going to have to give Sarah a, a miracle for them to have a child together. But Abraham had faith that didn't quit. His faith never died. Amazingly, his faith grew stronger. His faith grew stronger. Uh, Dr. Moo makes a really, a really good note here in saying that just like a muscle gets bigger with a workout and just as holiness grows when temptation is overcome, and I never thought about this, so too faith grows when it overcomes a lack of visible evidence. And I was like, that's a really interesting point. We always think like, uh, you know, I just, if, if I just saw a little bit more like tangible evidence, I might believe it more. But what happened for Abraham is that his faith grew stronger in the absence of evidence. He's getting older by the day. The promise isn't re being realized every single day. And yet his faith is growing stronger. And what does it say happens because of that? God was glorified. You know, he, I mean, that's, that's a really, that's an astounding praise that Abraham is giving to God, that he believes him more every single day, despite a lack of evidence. And if that isn't, if there aren't some practical implications for us in that, um, man, I really don't know what, what there is because so often lacking visible evidence, you know, is Christ coming for his church? Is he going to save us? It's harder to believe every single year that passes when Christ hasn't returned for his church. And yet our faith should grow stronger and stronger every single day. And and that actually gives God more glory when we have less evidence, which goes, if you're into philosophy, that goes against David Hume and Kant. And I mean, the whole stream of philosophy to think that you can be, you know, doing something good by believing something on, on less and less evidence. It's, it's a really amazing thing that Paul is doing here. Abraham was fully convinced that God was going to do what he said he was going to do because he said he was going to do it. And so Paul concludes this historical analysis of Abraham by saying that, yes, faith was counted to him as righteousness because his entire life was dominated as a picture of faith. He had an instantaneous moment of faith, yes, and that is when it was counted to him as righteousness. But what does chapter 1, verse 17 say? The just shall what by faith? Walk, live, yes. That's not like, oh, I had faith one time and God saved me, right? The person who has faith 
lives a life of faith. Genuine faith starts in a moment. God justifies you in that moment. And that faith will be the way that you live for the rest of your life. Sure, there are ups and downs. This is not to say that Abraham and Sarah probably didn't have some up and down days. Overall, I would say that the scriptural evidence is that they did. But as a general trend, what do you see Abraham doing every single day? Becoming more convinced, stronger in his faith every single day, even when the evidence wasn't there. That's cool. That's really cool. Who cares about some dude that lived like what? I don't know, 6,000 years ago? No, I mean, Paul, but why should we care? That's, that's the real question here. Why should we care about this dude from so long ago? What's the relevance to us? I, I mean, that's the question I ask myself as I'm writing these lessons. You know, okay, I got to tie this in, right? And then Paul just does it for me. It's amazing. The faith of Abraham and the faith of the Christian, verse 23 through 25. Paul tells us why it's important, and that's really helpful for me when I write lessons. <laughs> 23 through 25. But the words <laughs> it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for whose? Who was it? Who are these words written for? Ours. And also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, will, and he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Paul asked the question here um, that everyone should be asking right now. Who cares? Who cares what happened thousands of years ago? <clears throat> when God says for Abraham that he was forgiven and made righteous or holy or acceptable in God's sight for eternal salvation by faith. He doesn't just see these comments in Genesis for Abraham and for people back then. It's for us now. Why? God saves people the same way he always has. There has always been one way to one God, and that is through faith. They are preserved for us too. Why? Paul basically says the exact, like a very condensed version of the gospel here. If you want to be saved from God's wrath and judgment and hell and enjoy eternal life with him, there is only one way. And that one way is to believe in God and his good news that Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life, was crucified and died. But the son of God was not left in that grave dead. He was raised according to the power of the Father, and he was resurrected to life again. He died as the punishment for us, and he was raised to life for us to be able to have a good standing before God. He was able to have a good standing before God. And I, I will say, if you want to study Galatians chapter 3, this is such a cool point, and Paul argues for this in a different way, that all of these promises that were made to Abraham, guess who they're found in? One person, the one seed, is Christ. And the law was given years later. That can't annul, that can't void what happened before it. There was a promise made for one to come after Abraham, and that was Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, and we'll get to this in Romans chapter 6, it's a really beautiful truth. When you become a Christian, you are united with Christ. You are made one with Christ. It's like marriage, the illustration. You become one with the other person. You become one with Christ. 
And so who is inheriting all these promises? Who is inheriting all of this good stuff that God has promised? Jesus first. But who's united with Jesus when we believe? Us. Everyone who believes gets to experience all the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus because we become one with him through faith. And so I've I've said it before and I, I will say it again. This is what makes Christianity different than every single other world religion out there. The other religions in the world say that you have to do something, you have to become something, you have to become greater, you have to become enough. And Christianity is the exact opposite. It is recognizing that you are not enough, that you can never measure up to God's standards, which I think experientially really resonates with with what I feel, right? Like, how often do you walk around in life just feeling like, oh yeah, I'm enough. And if you do, you should really get that checked out. Um, But more often than not, we feel... I am not good enough. I can't do it. I can't. Great. That's exactly where you should be. When when you are going to try to come to God, God does not accept people who say, I'm good enough. I can get to you on my own. The people that God accepts are the people who know that they need a Savior. So when you're willing to trust that Christ would come to you, not that you can work your way to God, that Christ would take away your sin, not that you can work away your sin. And when you trust that Christ and only Christ can live by his act of obedience enough good works and do enough, when Christ is the only person that can do that and you realize that he is the only perfect person and God-man to ever walk this earth and that he's willing to extend that to you, that's the place that you can be to receive salvation. And so salvation and eternal life can never be accomplished by good works. It can only be received by placing your faith in Jesus' accomplishments for whom? For you. That's what's so nice, right? It doesn't mean that, and we'll see this in chapter 6. People say, oh, then it's all about grace. Then I don't have to do anything, right? That, That misunderstands what Christianity is. It may not make sense when you're not a Christian before you come to Christ. But when you're united to Christ and you experience the spirit that Christ has, then you couldn't want anything besides to be as similar to Christ as you possibly could be because he's everything, he means everything to you, and, and now you experience a new nature. You see what Christ is like and you want to live in that soul-satisfying, full type of life way. Um, I was doing some work in in John this way uh, this week, and um, and it says that the Father has life of Himself, right? The Father is the only one in the entire universe that by Himself just has life, and we crave life. We listen to entertaining stuff because it gives us life. As an extrovert, I hang out with friends because I feel more alive when I'm with friends. I'll go to Kroger and sit in a parking lot and eat tubs of ice cream with Lindsay and Emily if it just means I get to be with people, you know, because it gives me life. But Christ has come that you can have life and have it to the fullest, he says, right? Like when, when you're not a Christian and you, and you don't know what it is to have that guilt released and to have a yoke that is just super light, then wow, when you come to Christ, how much life, Living water just flows up out of your soul. Your soul bursts because you realize the goodness of God in your life. So I'm going to summarize chapter 4 and we'll be done for tonight uh, a couple minutes early too, hopefully. So seeking to demonstrate 
His third chapter claims to be true. Paul argues that Abraham was justified not by works, but by faith. Forgiveness, then, is not a debt of God's to be paid, but it's purely of his grace. The external rite of circumcision does not save since Abraham was declared righteous prior to being circumcised. As such, Abraham is father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, so long as they both have what? Faith. The promise made to Abraham cannot, it cannot be on the basis of law, lest faith become meaningless and the promise fail, since no one in this room or literally throughout all of history can live up to keeping the law. The promise instead depends on faith, and as such, Abraham is father of both the one with and without the law, so long as they both have faith. Abraham continued to demonstrate this faith in God, keeping his covenant, even when it seemed impossible from a human perspective. This faith-based justification, this right standing before God, is not just for Abraham, but rather it is now for us too, who will be justified by faith alone in the work of God through Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Aren't you glad that we serve a God that can raise from the dead? You know, this is what we believe, right? This is what faith is. Believing in God is believing that he did raise Christ from the dead. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who can give spiritual life to us when there was spiritual nothingness in us before? It was spiritual death even. And aren't you glad that we serve a risen Savior? Um, and that is really the quintessential, that is the final message of Christianity, is that God gives life, he brings life where there was nothing before, and he did that for Christ, and by faith you can be one with Christ and be in that whole lineage of being a child of Abraham. That's, that's the whole point. So um, would somebody be willing to close us in prayer, and then we will we'll call it a night for this evening. <clears throat> Anyone? Yeah, you got it. Lord, Father, God, you are our King. You are our friend. And as Jesus, you are our brother. Because of his sacrifice, we're co-heirs with Christ. There is so much profound truth to be learned Romans, so much to be understood, so much to chew on, so much to digest. Help us to dwell on these truths. Help us to dwell on the covenants you've given to Abraham, the covenant you gave to David, and the covenant you give to us. We are so not worthy of you, but you make the unworthy worthy. You make the worthless priceless. You make the sinful sinless. You mend what is broken. And you make us whole. Without you, we are nothing. Praise you, Father, for you are wonderful and good. Because you are God. I pray that you be with each and every individual in this room. Help us to honor you with all of our hearts, all of our lives, everything we think, say, and do in this world. And help us, Father, to come to know you more fully and truly for who you are and all that you've done for us. Help us to increase in love for one another as we increase in love for you. And I pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And all God's children say. Amen. Amen.